Hello and welcome back to the Yeshua Judaism series of podcasts. We're continuing with the study of Does Christianity Teach to Truly Follow Christ? And of course, within the study, I prove no, they don't. And this is part four of that series of studies. Again, Does Christianity Teach to Truly Follow Christ? Now, we're going to pick up where we left off. And if you're following along in the written material, you'll see that we're at the heading that's entitled, Yeshua Identifies the Most Important Passage of Scripture. So we'll pick up there. All right. Yeshua, or Jesus, identifies the most important passage in the entire Bible. Late in his earthly life, Yeshua was quizzed by a devout Jew of his day, although it was actually an easy question for anyone knowledgeable of Torah. We read this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. So, starting at verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Parallels to these verses are found in the Gospel of Mark chapter 12 and the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. These parallels confirm and elaborate upon the pro-Torah response of Yeshua the Messiah. I'll read from the Gospel of Mark chapter 12 verses 28 through 34, and I'll be using the English Standard Version. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he, referring to God, is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 28, again from the English Standard Version Bible. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, that is Yeshua said to him, 
you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. In these verses, we see Yeshua the Messiah responding to a question about Torah. Few Christians realize that such questions were common and that they reflect the Jewish, that is the Hebraic and Torah-focused, underpinning of the Gospels. Even fewer realize that Yeshua's answer is precisely the answer that will be given by any Jewish rabbi or student then, today, and throughout history, since the passages quoted by Yeshua represent the foundational basis of the Torah, upon which all truth is constructed. He was quoting what is called in Judaism the Shema, plus Leviticus 19.18. The Shema is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. The Shema Yeshua quoted, and which is a fundamental passage of Torah, was, is, and always will be the very core doctrine of Torah belief, indeed, the very core doctrine of all biblical faith. His use of it is but one of numerous examples showing the broad agreement Yeshua Judaism has with what is commonly known as Orthodox or Rabbinic Judaism, which I call Akiva Judaism. Unfortunately, Christians are quite unaware of that, as well as many more basic facts due to the plague of Torah ignorance within Christianity. It is no coincidence that the Shema was, is, and will be, when he returns, the core doctrine embraced and taught by Yeshua the Messiah. The point is reinforced by Yeshua's response to the questioner who himself displayed knowledge of Torah passages commonly considered fundamental teachings of a Torah-based faith. You will note that Yeshua displayed complete agreement with the man who posed the question and stated that the individual's Torah-based beliefs placed him very near the kingdom of God. So a question, what placed the man who questioned Yeshua so near to God's kingdom? The answer, his embrace and comprehension of Torah, which is the very opposite of Christianity's rejection, opposition, and unawareness of Torah. What does that suggest regarding Christianity's anti-Torah foundational teachings? Do such teachings place Christians near the kingdom of God or far from it? The answer should be obvious. Christian rejection of and opposition to Torah places Christians perilously far from the kingdom of God. This episode recorded in the Gospels is yet more strong proof of Yeshua's firm, uncompromising, and continuous pro-Torah position, a position he expects his followers to adopt and promote. Does Christianity follow Christ by adopting and promoting his position? Shamefully, no. It definitely does not. If it did, it would not continue to oppose his pro-Torah faith example and teachings. A strikingly similar conversation is recorded in Jewish literature between two prominent rabbis 
and a potential Jewish proselyte. There are slight variations to the story depending upon the source being referenced. However, one variation is as follows. Hillel and Shammai, a story reminiscent excuse me, of Yeshua's answer. Within the same time frame as Messiah Yeshua, actually about a generation or so before his time, there were two dominant rabbinic schools of thought within the Pharisaic sect of the widely varying pluralistic sphere of Jewish belief, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. The lasting impact of these two schools is still heavily felt today in rabbinic Judaism. There was a notable rivalry and mutual Mutually respectful debate between the two competing mindsets of Hillel and Shammai, with Hillel usually being less strict in his interpretation of Torah. One day, a young man approached Shammai and stated that he would adopt Torah into his life and convert to the Jewish way if Shammai could explain Torah while he, the young man, stood on one leg. Enraged by what he viewed as as an impossible question, and an irreverent mocking of the Torah, Shammai drove the young man away with his staff. The young man then approached Hillel with the same request. Hillel responded, Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. The rest is commentary. Having received his answer from Hillel, the young man adopted the Jewish way and began his journey of Torah learning. This shortened version I just, I just related of a widely known and taught event among anyone who studies Torah represents but one of many common parallels between Yeshua's teachings and the Torah teachings of a very highly revered rabbi. It is quite possible that since the Hillel Shammai influence was deeply felt in Yeshua's day, that the questioner in the passages we quoted earlier from the New Testament was actually seeking to know with, with which school of thought Yeshua agreed, either Hillel or Shammai. There is far more agreement with Judaism within the New Testament than disagreement, though neither Judaism's nor Christianity's leaders wish that to be known. And amazingly, there is also far more agreement with Judaism within the New Testament than there is with Christianity. Both Judaism's and Christianity's leaders also prefer for that to remain unknown. The New Testament is grossly misinterpreted within Christianity because the knowledge needed for correct interpretation is rejected due to Christianity's foundational anti-Torah position. That knowledge is, of course, Torah, which Yeshua and all his original followers loved and pursued for deeper understanding of God's will. Okay, so the point stands. Regardless, Messiah's answer to the question posed to him and quoted from the Gospels was thoroughly Jewish and with the standard no-need-to-mention pro-Torah understanding of his day. There is no hint whatsoever of any anti-Torah sentiment in Messiah's response. The Gospels persistently present a very Jewish Messiah who often used standard rabbinic methods such as parables and oral Torah, to convey truth. Even his arguments with rabbis of his day were typical since spiritual, or excuse me, since spirited debate was and is common. 
Delving into Messiah's Jewishness is beyond the scope of this discussion. A useful book, perhaps, revealing Messiah's Jewishness is Jesus the Jewish Theologian by Dr. Brad Young. That book, as well as an increasing number of others, presents evidence of Messiah's pro-Torah characteristics. Though I may not completely agree with Dr. Young's opinions, I recommend that book to anyone who seeks more insight. A final word from Matthew's Gospel. Although there is more that I could reference from Messiah's words, I realize this discussion is getting quite long. Therefore, I will limit my review to one final passage from the Gospel of Matthew. No one can argue its future reference since it is found within Messiah's discussion of the future scenario after his departure from this world. This passage is found within two entire chapters of Matthew's Gospel, in which Messiah provides an answer to a question from his disciples regarding what the future holds. Parallels are found in the Gospel of Mark chapter 13 and the Gospel of Luke chapter 21. My comments for the verses from Matthew are also applicable to Mark's and Luke's account. Quoting from Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, and I'll be quoting from the NET Bible. And again, the stop sign, he's obviously referring to a future scenario which would be in force after his death and resurrection. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The future relevance of their question is obvious. Messiah's response then follows and, as I stated, encompasses two entire chapters within that gospel. I am tempted to delve into a discussion of the crucially important chapters of Matthew chapter 24 and 25 since they have been severely misrepresented by Christian leaders. The misrepresentation is because if these chapters were properly interpreted, those leaders would be exposed as the deceivers to whom Messiah's response refers. However, I'll expand upon that within a separate discussion. For now, I simply wish to direct your attention to a single verse. It is a verse which further solidifies Messiah's very negative opinion of the lawless, that is, of those who oppose the Torah. And this is from Matthew chapter 24, verse 12. And I'll read it from the King James Version and the NET. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And then from the NET. And because lawlessness will increase so much, the love of many will grow cold. Here we once again find the Greek term anomia, and just as before, it is translated as iniquity in the King James Version and lawlessness elsewhere, such as the NET Bible. So, knowing that, basically Matthew 24, 12 from the NET would say, and because content for Torah will increase so much, the love of many will grow cold. That could literally be a correct English translation. Love grown cold. So once again, Yeshua the Messiah is speaking negatively about opposition to or contempt for Torah. 
In his description of the growing wickedness of the last days, he specifically mentions how lawlessness, that is, rejection of or contempt for Torah, is a primary reason why the love of many will grow cold. That love is love for both God and one's fellow man, since rejecting the eternal Creator's Torah cannot possibly contribute to love for that Creator and, therefore, also contributes to a growing coldness of heart among mankind in general. Indeed, a major reason, according to Yeshua the Messiah, for a disappearance of the love is a lack of Torah. The anti-Torah foundational doctrine of Christianity obviously contributes to the problem. Without doubt, Christianity's foundational opposition to Torah unwittingly assists in fostering wickedness in this world. Please do not fail to notice the irrefutable future reference within Yeshua's response to events that were to occur long after His death and resurrection. When will Christians awaken to the severity of Christianity's anti-Torah position? When will they repent and strive to repair the damage Christianity's anti-Torah position has caused instead of continuing to contribute to the damage. Honoring the Son Continuing with yet more proof that Christianity does not promote following Messiah, we will now read from the Gospel of John. And I'll be reading from John chapter 5, verse 23. I'll be reading from the NASB or the New American Standard Bible, and take note, this is also a future reference. I have a stop sign graphic because this is something that would be in force after Yeshua's death and resurrection. So again, from John chapter 5, verse 23. So, all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. A fundamental means of showing honor to the Son is to honor His example by following Him. As stated earlier, it is impossible to follow or honor Christ unless His teachings are honored and adhered to. Of course, the same applies to God, the Father who sent Him. Implicit within Messiah's statement in the Gospel of John is the reverse which is that he who does honor the Son does also honor the Father who sent him. And to do so requires that the Torah be honored. Refusing to honor the pro-Torah teachings and faith example of Messiah is the same as refusing to honor the Son and the God who sent him. It is a willful decision to blatantly dishonor both. Let me state that again. Refusing to honor the pro-Torah teachings and faith example of Messiah is the same as refusing to honor the Son and the God who sent Him. Such a refusal, refusing to honor the pro-Torah teachings of Messiah, is a willful decision to blatantly dishonor both Messiah and God. Believing the Son now I'll read from John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50, again from the New American Standard Bible. 
And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to, the, to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Notice he says, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Belief is more than simply an intellectual acknowledgement. It requires devotion, and that the one who has a believing faith actually follows the object of their faith. Messiah clearly states that to properly believe, that is to demonstrate faith in Him, one must demonstrate faith in God the Creator, His God and ours. A common sense basic ingredient of that faith requires devotion to God's instructions, to the Torah. Sadly, instead of devotion to Torah, Christianity, through its anti-Torah foundational position, promotes rejection of the living God's teachings. Choosing to not follow the pro-Torah teachings and faith example of Messiah is the same as refusing to believe or to believe in the Son or the God who sent Him. Seeing the Son Notice he said in the passages quoted, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. Now, to see, that's a term that refers to understand. So he's basically saying, He who sees or understands me sees or understands the one who sent me. Again, the Hebraic and the scriptural meaning of see in a spiritual context is akin to understanding. Therefore, to see Messiah is to understand Messiah. Elsewhere, it is stated that Messiah and God are one. I discussed that in other areas of this website, but the basic meaning is that Messiah, as the perfectly obedient servant and shaliach, or agent and emissary, of the one who sent him, is, quote, one, end quote, in purpose and will with the Father. It doesn't mean he's God. It is also stated that we are to be one with Messiah and with God in precisely the same manner. How can we see or be one with Messiah if we reject his undeniable pro-Torah stance? To see Messiah is to follow Messiah, and to follow Messiah is to revere and observe the Torah to which he himself was devoted. He said, I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Scripture teaches that the Torah is light. Messiah, as the perfect example of Torah, 
was the Torah made flesh, since he lived his life as his God and ours intends everyone to live. Thus, Messiah is also called light. Choosing to reject Messiah's pro-Torah teachings and faith example is the same as deliberately closing one's eyes and refusing to see him or the God who sent him. It is a choice to remain in the darkness instead of seeing and basking in the light. Hearing the Son Notice he said, again from what we quoted, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, he has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Here, Messiah makes mention of hearing his sayings or teachings and choosing to not keep them. His words are obviously timeless in their application, applying as much today after his death as they did then before his death. This is made particularly clear by his mention of the last day, which obviously refers to a future time. This reminds us of the previously discussed parable of the wise man who hears and does versus the unwise man who hears and does not do. Messiah states that the one who rejects him by rejecting his teachings will be judged by those teachings. Notice he said, the word I spoke will judge you, his teachings. Choosing to reject Messiah's pro-Torah teachings and faith example is the same as closing one's eyes and ears to his words and refusing to hear him. Anyone who believes or promotes that the Torah is abolished is indeed refusing to hear Messiah's words and will be judged by their response or lack of response to those words. The point is this. By rejecting and opposing the pro-Torah teachings and faith example of Yeshua the Messiah, Christians and their leaders are refusing to honor, to believe, to see, or to hear the Son and the one who sent him. The passages I quoted earlier, as well as, other, as well as others that were not presented, prove this in a simple, straightforward, and unambiguous manner. Let me state that again. By rejecting and opposing the pro-Torah teachings and faith example of Yeshua the Messiah, or Jesus Christ, Christians and their leaders are refusing to honor, believe, see, or hear the Son and the one who sent him. They're rejecting Messiah and the God who sent him. Walk the walk. The following verses that I'll be reading speak for themselves, showing that a true follower of Messiah walks as he walked spiritually and that such a walk includes reverence and observance of the eternal Torah. I will read from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, 1 John chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, 2 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, 
and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. First, I'll read from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. I'll read from the English Standard Version. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Now from 1 John chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is, as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, and lawlessness literally means Torahlessness. 2 John chapter 1, verses 6-11. through 11. Here I'll be reading from the Amplified Bible. And what this love consists in is this, that we live and walk in accordance with and guided by His commandments, His orders, ordinances, precepts, and teachings. This is the commandment, as you have heard from the beginning, that you continue to walk in love, guided by it and following it. For many impostors, seducers, deceivers, and false leaders have gone out into the world. Men who will not acknowledge, that is, confess or admit, the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, in bodily form. Such a one is the impostor, the seducer, the deceiver, the false leader, the antagonist of Christ, and the Antichrist. Look to yourselves, take care, that you may not lose, that is, throw away or destroy, all that we and you have labored for, but that you may persevere until you win and receive back a perfect reward in full. Anyone who runs on ahead of God and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, who is not content with what he taught, does not have God. But he who continues to live in the doctrine or teaching of Christ does have God. He has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, is disloyal to what Jesus Christ taught, do not receive him. Do not accept him, do not welcome or admit him into your house, or bid him Godspeed, or give him any encouragement. For he who wishes him success, that is, he who encourages him, wishing him Godspeed, is a partaker in his evil doings. Now from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Rather, speaking the love and truth, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. So we're to grow up 
into Christ, to mimic Christ. There is, of course, much disagreement to the position within this discussion that is expressed from Christians, and predictably, the most prevalent disagreement is voiced as, but the Apostle Paul says, this is a standard non-response. And we'll stop there, because this is a perfect place to pause, because in the next part, we'll jump into the severe misunderstanding, misinterpretation, and misuse of Paul's epistles. So before doing that, I'll just go ahead and pause here. We've already gone over 30 minutes, and I look forward to you listening again to part five, where we answer the question, does Christianity truly follow Christ? Of course, the answer is no, it doesn't. It actually teaches against following Christ. So thank you for listening to part four. And again, return for part five, because we're going to jump into some very interesting discussion regarding the Apostle Paul and how he is so horribly misused within Christianity. Thank you for listening and goodbye.